You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I've got a really interesting interview today with Hailey Hughes, all about recruitment and retention and teacher training and the new ECT framework. So there's lots of interesting information in today's podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire. I'm a coach. I work in schools with school leaders and teachers to help them to improve their well-being through coaching. And whether that's through teaching and learning coaching, I do leadership coaching through the Resilient Leaders Elements Leadership Development Programme. I do group coaching programs for women leaders and I do coach training programs as well. So there are lots of different ways that I use coaching in schools to help in terms of CPD and improving staff well-being. If it's something you're interested in implementing in new school, I'd be happy to have a chat with you about it so you can get in touch with me anytime about that. Anyway, this is a pretty long interview today, so I'm going to get straight into it so that you can find out all about the new golden thread that runs through CPD from ITE provision right to the um, NPQs and the core content framework for ITs and the ECT framework and how you can support uh, your mentors in school who are working with your ITE trainees and your ECTs. So here we go. Here's the interview for today with Hayley Hughes. Enjoy. Hayley Hughes, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. I'm really excited about chatting to you today. Excellent. I'm excited to chat to you, actually. I've been looking at um, lots of the things that you're doing and I think you've got loads of things to share with us. So can you just start by um, just tell us about yourself, who you are, what you've done, just a little bit of a, I don't know, your resume, should we say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started out my professional career as being a national newspaper journalist. Um, so I worked for a newspaper that has previously been closed down for phone hacking. Oh. Um, so I don't need to name that. It's rather infamous due to that, really. Uh, and a lot of the quite dodgy things that they did when when they were uh, still running. So I was there for uh, quite a few years and I started to get really disillusioned, essentially, with the type of work that I was doing, not through being a journalist, because actually if people read my Twitter bio, they'll see that that's still the first thing I describe myself as. I I still see myself as a journalist. I still do a lot of writing, but it was more the kind of stories that I was being sent on, um, the the more outlandish things that they were asking me to do in pursuit of a story. Mm. And I really wanted to do something, to be honest, that had a bit more moral purpose. So after a brief spell at the BBC in broadcast journalism, I decided to retrain as an English teacher. I had an English degree and a a passion for literature and um, have been a teacher for almost the last 15 years and have have just had had spells as as a middle leader, um, as a head of English, a senior leader. Um, a classroom teacher which is actually the the role I enjoyed the most to be honest Um, and then I've just very recently three weeks ago left um, being a classroom teacher in a secondary school to take up a position as head of education at Iris Connect 
um, which essentially is, is teacher CPD. I get to research and write things and, and look at policy and come up with fantastic ideas to develop teachers all day. It's a dream come true, really, to be honest. And I combine that with a career as a senior lecturer at the University of Sunderland on their PGC English course, as well as um, delivering the, the early career framework rollout for the East Manchester Teaching School Hub, which will begin in September, and also uh, delivering the MPQLTD for, for Bright Futures as well, which I think my cohort is in February. And I tend to, to balance that really with, with writing books uh, writing lots of articles and also being in the fourth year of a of a of an eddy as well. <laughs> I'm, la I'm laughing because you said because you came in at the end. I was just about to say, oh, just a few things then, and then you said, oh, and I balance that with just just this other stuff that I do. So, um, yeah, you're not that busy then. <laughs> well, my colleagues used to say that I seem to knit hours from somewhere else, but um, I don't know how I do it, really, to be honest. Um, I, I am quite driven. So if somebody gives me a task to do, I'll sit and finish the task until I've done it. Um, but sometimes that can be um, a bad thing. <laughs> and you've you've put you've put on I think I came across you on Twitter because you were doing um, an education conference as well. So mm -hmm. so you've got that that you do as well, putting on educational conferences and things too yeah I mean I've ran Bruehead uh, conferences in the past in in Oldham uh, which are absolutely fantastic for people who are listening and, and have, haven't heard of Bruheads before they're essentially grassroots education conferences so they take um, place in pubs um, and you have really short presentations from people. It's quite informal. There's loads of networking and pints and pedagogy. Let's face it, it's a winning combination. So I've, I've run those before and have another one coming up in, in Saddleworth in Oldham, where I live um, in November. Um, and, but I'm also running my first big national conference, which is quite terrifying and exciting at the same time, on October the 30th this year, which is specifically aimed at mentoring. So it's right. called Mentor Ed. So it's taking place in, in Manchester at Manchester Communication Academy in Harper Hay on Saturday, October the 30th. And we've got an insane lineup. It's very, very exciting. And tickets will be on sale for that in the next few weeks. Excellent. So, yeah, I do, I'm, I'm in awe of people who can do all these things. It's just, I think it's just amazing. I'm just staggered at the amount of, of stuff that you can do. The reason I thought about asking you to come on the podcast was because I know that you know quite a lot about teacher retention and recruitment with the work that you do with NQTs and RQTs and things like that and my feeling is that you know we are in the middle of a, a huge crisis at the minute and one of the reasons that I do the work in well-being that I do is so that schools can create the right environment in which to nurture their staff and hopefully retain them and keep them and develop them so what are your feelings about this I don't know if it's like another like you've probably got so much to say on it but in terms of like the way that teachers are trained and the way that they go into their jobs and how we support them and how that's going to change what are your feelings on that 
I think we're at a time at the moment of, of national flux when it comes to new teachers entering the profession. Yeah. We've only very recently had the core content framework that all IT providers will have to use as their curriculum for training teachers. We've got the early career framework rollout and that promised two years of support for, mm. for those who are new to the profession in September this year. I know there's been some early pilots and people who've taken part in them have been really positive about it. And then we also have the ITT market review that was kind of dropped like a bombshell a few weeks ago, um, which is asking all IT providers to go through an accreditation process um, next sort of April time to be able to actually continue to provide that initial teacher education from September onwards. And they've got to evidence all sorts of things to do with curriculum, uh, to do with mentoring, to do with their partnerships. So I think that the whole kind of sector, really, when it comes to training new teachers, is in a real period period of upheaval, to be honest, and flux. And it's in response, um, isn't it, to the fact that it's some <clears throat> is it somewhere around 35 percent of teachers new to the profession leave a bit like by five years? Well, my math new entrants have left. Is it something? Yeah, like yeah. I mean, my maths is rubbish, so um, I can't I can equate kind of percentages to to numbers. Um, but one in three is the statistic that I've seen. Yeah. So the the DFE did a big um, they they formulated a recruitment and retention strategy in about 2018 and and those figures came from that so it was one in three new teachers don't last five years in in the classroom so it's it's quite terrifying actually and when you consider that there's already a shortage of teachers um and actually the the rise in the population as well we're, we're going to be in for real trouble i think in the next decade or so and you know the, the dfe have had huge recruitment drives to to try to get people to enter the profession but for me it's not just the recruitment that's the issue it's, it's the retention which which I think is the bomb, really, that's going to cause a lot of problems. I also know so many experienced teachers who are choosing to leave the profession as well, which is a massive blow to, to students. Well, both you and I have left, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you've got you've got it's a it's a it's two things, isn't it? It's like you're saying, you know, those young teachers aren't staying. And I think something like 27 percent of teachers in a, in a survey that they did said that they were planning on leaving in the next 12 months. Yeah, like, yeah. Like over I mean, a quarter. It, when you yeah. put those two things together, it's a it's a disaster waiting to happen, isn't it? It is. It's definitely a ticking time bomb. I mean, I should make it quite clear, really, um, for, for anyone listening, that I haven't kind of left the profession because I'm fed up um, or, or don't want to be in it. And I probably will go back to schools. Yeah. Um, I, I left for an opportunity rather than um, leaving because I was fed, fed up with the profession. But so many people do. Um, and I can completely sympathise with, with that point of view. Yeah. So in terms of I feel like there's been it's almost like a, there's a knee jerk reaction. So the figures come out and then the government say, well, we need to do something about it. And then there's so much for schools to get their heads around now with all these things that you've been referring to. Mm-hmm. I think schools are in a really difficult position, aren't they, to try and get all these things in place so quickly and be ready for like the new framework and everything that's being rolled out currently. 
Yeah, I mean, especially after a global pandemic yeah. as well. You know, white, all... white schools aren't busy enough. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and all the changes that are upcoming with that as well, you know, the fact that um, there's going to be very little restrictions within a month of us returning in September and heads are, and, and health and safety leads are obviously trying to get their heads around that. Um, and, and, you know, the whole kind of uncertainty with, with next year's exams. I mean, it's a lot for, for already very tired, heavily burdened um, heads and, and SLT to deal with. I think sometimes we we don't think about how lonely being a head teacher can be and, and how hard SLT work as well. They get quite a lot of flack um, sometimes from other teachers, but we need to remember that SLT and heads are humans too and that, yeah. and that they need a rest. And this this whole, you know, 18 months has been relentless with things being um, big policy changes and shifts and legislation issues being announced on the last days of holidays. And, you know, speaking to heads up and down the country when I go into schools, delivering CPD it just strikes me how tired and fed up heads are at the moment yeah it's 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 very hard isn't it and often a person on SLT will take responsibility for NQTs RQTs ITEs and and it's like you're saying it's a lot to get the head around so what are the key what are the key things that that senior leaders need to know about the changes that are being made to the way that we um to the way that we work with our newly qualified teachers who are not called that anymore either they're called early early career teachers I think yeah ECTs yeah. yeah so so essentially I would say that the DFE's vision from what I can see from reading all the policies is that there is this kind of continuous thread um, of CPD that follows a, a teacher throughout their career and all of these three big policy changes reflect um, the, this kind of thread uh, of constant development yeah. and they all link I think Prior to, to these changes, sometimes there was um, a bit of a, of a gap, I think, between initial teacher education and just being dropped into the classroom as, as, as an NQT, really, and you were expected to just sink or swim. I think what the DFE are attempting to do, um, in, in my opinion, is to actually build a bridge between those these three kind of crucial stages in people's career. And I think they're hoping that by that thread running all the way through that they will retain not just early career teachers but experienced teachers so I would say that the the big thing for school leaders to know is to be familiar with the um, content in the core content framework that the IT providers are working from I think that's really important because the CCF is actually almost the same as the early career framework and it dovetails so they're, they're going on this kind of um, idea, really, that initial teacher trainees will learn certain skills and certain theory, and then that will then be built upon in their two years as an early career teacher. And then for those of us who are more experienced, the new MPQ suite will, will pick up on those things and build on those further. Um, the, the main changes for, for early career teachers are that it's no longer just one year of, of being an NQT. It's a two-year provision. So NQTs used to get a 10% reduction on their timetable yeah. um, to go and observe other colleagues, to do PPA, to do marking, whatever. Um, you know, So that, that was their kind of professional development time. They also are now eligible for some reduction in the second year as well to continue with that. 
I think the the other big change is that um, the training materials that the ECT will get from the early career framework are all centrally um, delivered. So they the DFE put out a tender for organisations to deliver those. And I think Ambition Institute teach first um edt and a couple of others were all chosen to to roll out that so that all of the training materials come from kind of central doctrine but they've then been adapted for for the different organizations that are delivering it so they'll deliver they'll receive that training external to their school so i know some schools have actually chosen to go with no provider and do it themselves um, i know the brilliant johnny utley's teal trust in the northeast has decided to do that and i've seen their program and it's it's outstanding i, imagine I think <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I, th- I think the other uh, main change really is the role of the mentor and that's why I really wrote my book, Mentoring in Schools, because I think the mentoring, is, as Professor Rachel Lofthouse says, has always been seen as a kind of Cinderella profession. You know, mentors work really hard under the backbone of a school, but there's very little recognition for what they actually do or has been previously. So as part of this new kind of role as a mentor, you're there much more as an expert colleague to guide, to rehearse, to practice, to help them with bridging the gap between research and and Uh, practice but also it is a reciprocal arrangement because as a mentor you will be developed yourself through high quality mentoring materials and I think the relationship between um, the mentor and also ITE providers if you are mentoring an ITE student is is much stronger than it's ever been because they talk um to to each other a lot more and they'll they'll receive training from different he institutions as well so it sounds like there's a lot of work going on and that we will be able to retain younger teachers better do you think that do you think that has been the issue in the past it that they've been lacking in support in the first few years of teaching from from the schools that they've been in I think all of this stuff comes from this, this um, you know, research that the, the DFE did um, on why people are leaving the profession. And one of the main things that was cited was the lack of support early on in the career. Mm. So that's where all this has come from, this this kind of re-imagining um, of, of the, the whole market, really, to be honest, and the, and the re-accreditation process. I think this is a good start. I think if it's done well, it could be really fantastic. Um, you know, but, but I also think that school also need to tackle workload as well yeah. a lot more because one of the main reason that people cite for leaving the profession is workload um yeah. and, and until that is sorted out in schools I think we'll probably still see people leaving the profession one of one of the things that I think is that <laughs> and there is no answer to this Haley, but teachers have too high a teaching load that's that's the main mm-hmm. problem and to only have, if you're in a primary school, to only have two and a half hours a week, or even if you're in a high school, I know it's the minimum requirement, to have two and a half hours a week to do PPA or, you know, an hour at the end of the day or whatever it might be. Just, there just isn't enough time. And when you're teaching, there aren't enough hours in the day to do all the things that you have to do either. And that is, that is definitely one of the pressures. Um, but just going back to what you were saying about mentoring, I feel like there's this is no offence to um, ITE providers or universities, but mentor training has not been 
high quality in the past. And I, and I think that sometimes mentors have been let down because the training hasn't been there for them. Do you feel like there will be better training for mentors because there is so much of a focus on it in all of these new initiatives that are coming through? Yeah, I mean, they'll have to be, to be honest, because in order for the HE institutions to actually be reaccredited, there's a lot of evidence and hoops that they are, they're going to have to jump through in terms of their, you know, proving that their mentor training is up to scratch. Um, I think, you know, it's it's very easy to criticise um, IT providers for, for things um, and, and base kind of whole scale statements about mentor training not being great um, on, on a couple of experiences. But I certainly know that a lot of the mentor training that I've been privy to seeing um, in universities across the country has been really great. Sometimes there's a little bit too long spent on the paperwork element of it. I would absolutely agree. But I think, you know, HE institutions are really starting to move with the times in terms of, of research, etc., um, I think you will have seen on Twitter quite a lot of kickback against the ITT market review from um, universities with Oxford and Cambridge even saying that they're going to, to pull out and not offer teacher training anymore if, if the right. market review goes through. Um, but I think a lot of the objections that people have is the speed at which this has been dropped on on institutions yeah. so the the review itself was kind of dropped in um july um just as we were leaving school after an already horrific um year for, for school leaders and for universities who've had to sort out um online placements etc it's been crazy yeah um so this was dropped then and the consultation period ended this week um so it wasn't very long for for staff to put all of that together as well as have the annual leave that they deserve um so a lot of the the criticism isn't of what the dfe are actually trying to do um it is the speed of it really um that people are expected to turn things around and also a suppose the very um overly descriptive nature of or prescriptive should I say nature of what HE institutions are going to have to to do and then the way that they're going to have to train um student teachers it seems to take the autonomy um away from them which is so important in local contexts um so it'll be interesting thing to watch really and, and see what happens for sure it's interesting that isn't it because there's a there's a little bit of a uh, is it a discrepancy is mm. the word I'm looking for between Ofsted who say they don't have a prescribed way of teaching and mm -hmm. then the government coming in and saying this is how we want you to train teachers and mm -hmm. they but I remember when I trained as a teacher I learned nothing about how children learn I didn't I didn't I learned about how to deliver lessons and how to plan a lesson Mm -hmm. But I had no, there was, there was nothing on the curriculum, I suppose, to do with how the brain works or how memory works or mm -hmm. how, how you learn information, how you retain information. Is mm -hmm. that something that in this new framework, the, the core content framework, is that something that's included now that uh, ITE students will have to learn about? Yeah, it's all very much based on the principles of metacognition and COGSI. Um, and I was the same. I mean, I, I learned to train to teach in the mid 2000s and it was a time of kind of discovery learning, um, you know, inquiry um, based teaching, you know, all, all of that stuff. And I think facilitation. 
yeah yeah teachers as, as kind of I guess technicians really in a way or facilitators yeah and yeah. um, you certainly weren't seen as the expert at the front of the room um w- without a doubt um and you know I don't belong to um a, a trad or, or a prog binary I'm not into that no, I think it's divisive and, yeah. and pathetic I think the space for for everybody's style of teaching and actually I call on on elements of both quite often in my own teaching um but I think you know the the principles of kind of cognitive load theory the, the way that students learn all of that I mean Sweller was writing about this in kind of the mid-2000s really and then did a kind of seminal paper in 2011 on, on cognitive load theory and I think a lot of teachers it comes from educational psychology and I think a lot of teachers have obviously in the last five or six years picked up on on Sweller's work and obviously we had the EF's metacognition report in 2018 which I think actually um, a lot of teachers were kind of plugged into that type of, of the science behind the way that students learn after that report um, and you know I, I find um, all, all of that stuff really massively interesting mentoring in schools is, is pretty much based on principles of cognitive science because the early career framework is and I think it's really really important that, that mentors and educators understand those theories because you know they if things like Rosenshine and you know looking at direct instruction and deliberate practice I mean all of those things are, are, are really important I would argue to um, early career teachers just as much as we might look at you know the the, the differences between the way we we deal with negative and, um, and disruptive behavior you know restorative practices alongside some of the more traditional forms of dealing with behavior so I think as, as, as a new teacher, it's important that we have a grounding of those key theories. And, and then from then, we are able to build our own style on those firm foundations. It's hard, isn't it, then, if you're a mentor? I suppose you'd be learning more probably off your trainee than you can teach them in some respects. Because if if I was, a, I mean, obviously, I've done that research myself, but I know there are a lot of teachers who haven't had an opportunity to do all that extra research I was a geek I like way back in the past I used to watch teachers tv and mm-hmm. I, I watch youtube videos of people teaching and I'm, I'm always getting the next book and I, I, that fires me up I love finding out about how to teach children better and how to help them learn not all teachers have the time or the inclination to do that do they so that's where the training for mentors comes in as well it's not just about how to mentor effectively is it it's about having that knowledge that underpins the work that the that the trainees or the ECTs have done and are doing isn't it yeah absolutely and and to be honest that was another reason why I wrote mentoring in schools because each of the uh, chapters is, is based on a particular standard in the early career framework and the first part of it is what does the research say so it's a really easily digestible kind of overview I suppose a literature review almost of, of the research that underpins those particular standards because I think we can't take it for granted that mentors actually are aware of, of that research and obviously to be able to then pass that on that research on and and to bridge what that looks like in the actual classroom of your subject to an early career teacher you know that would be really difficult wouldn't it if you didn't understand the the theories yourself absolutely yeah yeah you would struggle wouldn't you Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so one of the things that I think people struggle a little bit with as well is coaching is something that is becoming more 
used in schools Mm -hmm. and coaching and mentoring have a lot of similar um they're they're similar features they've got similar features in a lot of ways but they're but they're quite different Mm -hmm. so what do you think the benefits of mentoring over coaching are with the early careers teachers um, I'm not necessarily saying that I, I do believe mentoring is, is best for early career right. teachers, to be honest. Um, I think uh, I, I say this in my book and, and whenever anybody asks me, I would advocate more of an instructional coaching model um, because I think there is this kind of suggestion with instructional coaching that a novice teacher needs scaffolding and support, and modelling and guiding and rehearsal from um, somebody who is more expert in, in that field than them. Um, and if we look at research, you know, Kraft, Blazar and Hogan um, did a, fa- a study that found that instructional coaching was um, the kind of best way of supporting um, early teachers, which actually then impacted on, on um, pupil outcomes. So I would probably say instructional coaching is best. I think mentoring has this um, reputation almost of being kind of a softer, more relationship focused form of guidance, whereas coaching seems to be more structured. But I would say that actually there's a lot more that's similar about the two approaches than than is different, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, I think instructional coaching as well is different from what you would class as traditional coaching. Yes. And I think it's about being able to know which one of those is useful at which point, isn't it? I always think... With coaching, in, its, in the traditional sense of coaching, you're expecting your coachee to be able to find the answers and to come up mm-hmm. with whatever, it, like the solutions to whatever it is that they're dealing with or what challenges they're facing. And I think when you have to switch into mentoring is when you know that your coachee doesn't necessarily have the answers. And I think often probably your ECTs are less likely to have the answers because they've not developed that, they've not developed their toolkit, so to speak, yet have them. They need some of those things taught to them. And that's when instructional coaching comes in as well, because you can model something, then they can practice it, and then you can discuss how it went and they can practice it again and you scaffolding it for them. And then you sort of build into that point of actually being able to pull away and let them be independent and have that whole toolkit that they can use and then you can do more of a traditional coaching with them but it's about being able to judge isn't it as the person who's working to support that ECT or trainee whatever it is to know which the best approach is at which point yeah absolutely and I think that that's the good thing about a a model like instructional coaching because you know at the the beginning you have kind of the scaffolds and things that a a novice teacher might need um, as they're sort of developing but then as they go into the second year of being an ECT those scaffolds can be removed a little bit Um, so it is about being responsive and adaptive I think as as a mentor um, and really knowing focusing on on really kind of granular targets and you know small wins and and building it from there and being flexible and in in the approach that you choose as well yeah absolutely yeah how do you how do you see sort of mentors working in schools I think a lot of the time sometimes in schools there's a lot of it's a bit hands-off at the minute isn't it so so a lot of teachers will 
use that time to sit at the back of the class and mark some books and it can be and not always don't get me wrong I'm not I am not saying this is so much quality mentoring going on out there don't get me wrong I'm not being derogatory about all mentors but I'm saying sometimes when people take that role on they do expect it to be well I'll sit at the back of the class I'll mark some books and I'll be there Mm -hmm. if they need me and then you'll do a formal lesson observation and you'll give the feedback and this is slightly different isn't it it's going to require more support and input from mentors just by the nature of it yeah it absolutely is and and from what I've been seeing in kind of schools up and down the country really I think SLTs have have responded to that by creating kind of new positions in school that are going to ensure that mentors are supported so I've seen a few schools that have the assistant head for teaching and learning or staff development still kind of overseeing the um, you know the the training of, of teachers but you have that external support now from people like Ambition Institute or Teach First or whatever provider the the LEA or the school have gone for and and I've seen roles also being introduced like early career framework lead um you know mentor lead which are almost kind of whole school positions um or or TLRs which mean that there is somebody individually looking after those staff members in school and I know that the DFE have um given money to schools to support mentor um training and mentor time so I know that some schools have actually given mentors some PPA as well with with that funding and that will be really really helpful to mentors um, who usually try to shoehorn in in all the things that they have to do in in their own time because there is a significant cost implication isn't there in terms of the time that is going to have to be dedicated to not only training and I feel sometimes why you know I was I wasn't I wasn't being negative about universities and training providers in that way, but often mentor training is not good because there's not enough of it because you're allowed to go out for one afternoon in the year for your mentor training. And in, in this new, with the new sort of framework, it's going to have to be more ongoing training, isn't it? And there's going to have to be a significant amount of commitment to it from governors and in terms of the finance, there's, there's going to have to be financing of it as well. So you just mentioned some um, some funding. How can um, how can schools access that? I think that <laughs> yeah, I think that will already have been sorted out. To be honest, by school right. finance departments. Um, so I'm I'm not sure about the finance element of it. I just know what the uh, policy change actually stated. Um, I, when it comes to the mentor and the early career teacher training, that's already all been paid for centrally. So schools don't have to uh, provide money for that at all. And quite a number of the sessions will be online. So. Um, you know this is a time really where schools really need to start um embracing video technologies i think just as they have for for teaching students um so a lot of that will be delivered online so mentors can access that at the end of the school day or you know a time that is a bit more convenient to them and ppas won't um, necessarily have to be used so tell me a little bit about because i know you said you're the head of education at iris connect Now, I remember, (laughs) this is going back quite a number of years, but our local high school got this thing called Iris and word went out that 
oh, you've got a video on you in your lesson and you've got um, you've got a little earpiece in and the head teacher or the senior leadership team can sit in the control room and they can watch all of their staff teaching and then they can speak to you via your earpiece and tell you what you're doing wrong or what you need to do. And there was a bit of a, oh, really? And it was it was seen as like really intrusive and that it was going to like be not trusting teachers and things like that. Now, my experience of Iris was entirely different. We used it at the last school I was working in. And it's a brilliant, brilliant tool, in my opinion, so that you can, I know there are all sorts of things you can do with it, but the basics of it mean that you can record someone's lesson and then afterwards you can go through the lesson and have a discussion about it and actually see it in front of you rather than trying to have a conversation after a lesson where you've made lots of you know copious amounts of notes and you're trying to remember what happened and so it gives you much more of an insight into what went on in the lesson and can inform your discussions so can you tell me sort of from your perspective how like iris connect or other there are other companies aren't there who do a similar thing in terms of video technology and lessons but how you feel like that can support maybe ects or even teachers who are further on in the career in terms of cpd before we find out more from Hailey about how you can use video technology to improve professional development in your school, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are other companies really that, that do what the Iris Connect platform can do, um, which is why it's so kind of widely used and so popular. Um, I mean, I think schools, uh, unfortunately, sometimes only utilise a tiny amount of what, what the platform is actually yeah. capable of. So yeah. so one of the, one of the things um, that you mentioned was about kind of, you know, recording lessons and then watching them later together. That's one of the really powerful tools because, um, you know, when people, are certainly new um, in training to be a teacher or you know an early career teacher for example um, instructional explanations um, accompanying a process can be really really useful in allowing them to to build knowledge so the video tool is really perfect for that because you know you can stop something and say did you see what I did there I'm about to do this and talk them through the kind of metacognitive processes I suppose of, of chunking things down into and scaffolding it into precise kind of instructions for what you did and you're thinking behind that so that's really useful they have a comment tool as well um, if a 
early career teacher wanted to individually reflect on something that they'd done during the lesson, they can, you can use the comment tool to put it on a precise moment of the video and match it to that so you can watch it, um, which is really, really useful. But one of the brilliant things about Iris Connect is actually the capabilities of collaborating with others in, in you know, your uh, school but also more kind of wide if you're in a trust, et cetera. Um, so that, that's a really fantastic tool. And they also do a brilliant thing called a, the Film Club, um, yeah, which is yeah. kind of CPD um, on there. Again, with like a chat function, a sharing function. Um, so it is it really is a fantastic tool, the platform. And, you know, I feel really lucky to be working for the company in such an exciting time. I think going forward, um, logistically, Iris Connect is brilliant for observing lessons because it means that people don't have to actually physically be in the lesson it gives you a wider scope so that helps head teachers and school leaders with covering lessons which are already really pushed at the moment because of staff absence with with illness or not being able to recruit supply teachers which is something that we we talked about earlier which can be really difficult um, but also I think going forward the ITT market review talks about um, every kind of regional area having a lead mentor and those lead mentors being kind of responsible um, for keeping up to date and in touch with mentors in schools. So I think Iris Connect would be an absolutely invaluable platform for them to use as well for to, to watch early career teachers kind of across whole big regions. And you could use it to record meetings and things like that as well, couldn't you? I yes, guess? And absolutely. Then use, that, mm -hmm. use that for sharing in terms of when you're training and things like that. Um, how this is the key thing for me how do you get people when you when you say to people i would say well let's use iris oh no no i can't i can't watch myself i can't watch myself on and i'd have to do so much cajoling with some people to actually get them to have the iris camera in their classrooms how would you recommend people overcome that because people are really self-conscious aren't they they don't like the way they look or they don't like the sound of their voice it, it's it can be difficult sometimes to get people on board with that yeah absolutely um i think it, that will probably have gotten better though since you've been in a school because we've all had to teach online for the last year and a bit so people are now much more used to hearing the voice i think online and and seeing themselves um but that is certainly you know a, a barrier that can be quite difficult to overcome I think what's important with the use of video technologies I think is being really kind of open and, and honest and drawing up guidelines at the start of it about what we're comfortable with you know reassuring people about what will happen to their data what the videos will be used for you know on Iris Connect the person who uploads the video is solely the person that has yeah. access to that unless they choose to share it with others I know that sometimes people have been worried that the videos might be used in some kind of performance management or to catch teachers out or you know something like that and that just isn't the case um so i think it, it's also a culture shift if we can see that the leaders in our school are also utilizing video technology then it somehow feels more legitimate I think so it's something that comes from the top down really and, and if it's something that's used you know daily in, in our practice it's something that we get used to and comfortable with yeah I think it can be exceptionally useful if you are doing if you've got a coaching approach so for example in the school I work in um 
we do record lessons so that they can be used when the coaching conversation is taking place. It's absolutely invaluable having having that there. And I also find that as long as you make the conversations that you have about what's being seen on the video really positive, not positive, but but helpful, that, that someone finds that conversation really useful and that it improves their practice, you tend to get more buy-in. And that comes with training as well, doesn't it? Sort of training mm-hmm. people how to how to use that video in a conversation with a member of staff. If you if you just in a coaching conversation, it's about training people how to do that and use the video technology as well. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know there are lots of things that schools are doing every single day that using something like Iris Connect could make a lot more well a lot easier but also a lot more effective and I think it's about thinking creatively about the systems and the processes that you already have and you know integrating video into into parts of that whether it is like you say recording coaching conversations recording meetings instead of using minutes you know and and going back to those I mean there's there's a massive host there's a whole you know plethora of ideas of, of things that schools could use it for um, you know, and I, I just think it can be a really transformational tool in, in teacher reflection and development. What what are your thoughts on why teacher? you know, we talk about workload, but also one of the areas that people talk about is CPD, isn't it? That the element of professional development in their role. How do you see this is a this is an absolutely huge question and I don't know if there's an I, I don't know if there's an answer to it. But how do you see CPD developing from, you know, so I know the government have introduced this three stages thing, but how do you see that developing within a school in terms of how you support staff through CPD to to retain staff? Do you think that's one of the key things that's really important, quality CPD? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, CPD is massively important. I think a lot of schools now have cotton on to the the basically the the premise that you know everybody sitting in a hall and listening to somebody presenting at the the front of it is probably quite an ineffective form of of CPD Um, in terms of I think CPD needs to be more bespoke there are inevitably going to be some time when you know an approach like that is needed say for example if an external speaker comes in um, or if it's safeguarding training or a key message that you know school leaders need to get out to staff but then that needs to be kind of cascaded down then to something that the teacher then has time to look at their own practice and and take that new learning or information and make it more bespoke to their priorities I think collaborating with others is a massive part of, of CPD that I think sometimes gets missed out um so working in things like triages and things like that can be really useful particularly with people who have different roles from you and are in different departments I think action research is a a brilliant form of CPD as well you know enabling teachers to do something like an inquiry project where they take something from the school priority list and and that really you know lights their fire and they're passionate about and does some action research to look at the impact of a of a strategy I think is really important as well 
but also I think you know professional development takes many forms doesn't it you know it isn't about just sitting doing something that's going to get higher exam grades some of my best professional development has took taken place in in departments where we've had kind of informal really fiery discussions about texts that we teach um or taken the form of subject knowledge um CPD where you know somebody in the department has um, presented on something that they did on their degree which really opens up a new way of thinking about a particular character or text or author so I think it takes many forms um, and you know I think mixing and matching a lot of forms is, is the best way that's bespoke to you. I, I'm a very strong proponent of much, much more subject knowledge CPD for staff. I think it's just so important, like you're talking about, to have those intellectual discussions about poetry or about a text or to have conversations about exam answers and just to talk through sort of the subject specific nature of what you do can't be underestimated. And I think that actually dedicating time to allow departments to do that is absolutely key to effective teaching and learning. I don't think you can teach children effectively if, if your staff don't have really developed subject knowledge. One of the things that I think is a struggle for schools in terms of, you know, all of the things that you've referred to, I think would be a brilliant CPD program for staff it's the time isn't it we like we sort of back to that thing where it's it's time and everything's so tight do you have an answer to that <laughs> I think I, I think you know solve all the world's problems in the podcast Hayley <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think hack down schools priorities and, and focus on doing a smaller number of things really, really well, because I think sometimes there's a lot of kind of knee jerk decisions that, that go on um, that can actually detract and deviate from the really important stuff. So I think that's really important, but it's absolutely easier said than done, particularly if you're a school leader who's got to kind of dance to, to the tune of central policy. Um, so I know, um, it, you know, it's probably a lot easier said than done but I think that time to actually embed things to consider to reflect on things um to to think about how that might work in your particular context is is so vital and you know decent professional development doesn't happen overnight it's something that needs to be built on um and sometimes I think we are guilty in schools of thinking that people can just change overnight or develop overnight and it's just not the case and that they want to as well Mm -hmm. yeah you know there has to be a desire from somewhere that makes your staff want to be better teachers and the the EEF research tells you doesn't it that it's it's the teaching that goes on in a classroom that makes a difference to the outcomes that you achieve with pupils it's the quality of teaching and that really has to be a focus that if you're cutting budgets don't cut don't cut your cpd budget don't cut the time that you spend on quality cpd because that's what makes the difference for pupils yeah absolutely yeah um and and as you said 
you know, both the Sutton Trust and, and the EAF have stated that about quality first teaching making the biggest impact. And part of that, that quality teaching is quality professional development. So it's massively important. I mean, Mark and Zoe Enzer have just released an absolutely brilliant book called the CPD Curriculum. And I would recommend to, to all people, school leaders and, and people who are in charge of teaching and learning in schools to have a read of that book because it sets out, you know, some really brilliant case studies on how people have, have made some of the some of this stuff we talked about today work in their own contexts. So we are talking about when we've got these people in the classroom already and, you know, all of the things that we've talked about, hopefully, will help you. There's Ruby. I said before we started talking, didn't I? <laughs> she can hear she can hear cars going past and she she's on she's on high alert now. She thinks somebody's coming in to attack us. She's she's wanting to protect us. Um, and they're all they're all great things to do to retain your staff and to make them feel valued um, and to create that sense that you know you trust them to be autonomous and to gain mastery over their own um professional skills and development one of the big issues is we're not getting enough people applying to train to teach are we mm, that's no. one of the main problems we can do we can do all we you know all these things to say let's retain quality staff and prevent young teachers and experienced teachers from leaving the profession but how do we go about encouraging more people to join the profession that's the golden question isn't it um, I ask all these hard questions on the podcast uh, I just <laughs> I just throw those questions out there yeah I mean one, one thing I think we, we we shouldn't do is um you know throw throw bursaries constantly at people um I think the bursaries are brilliant for leveling up in terms of you know, for example, I come from a very disadvantaged background. If I would have chosen to become a teacher straight from university, I wouldn't have been able to do it without a bursary. Um, as it was, I trained in sort of my mid to late 20s and had already worked for a few years. So was able to then take that hit a little bit without the promise of a, of a golden hollow or a bursary. I think sometimes people do study particular shortage subjects when they're not particularly passionate about that subject and don't really see teaching as being a long-term career um, because of the bursary or a golden hello. Like I've had colleagues in the past seeing out their two years of being a science teacher and, and taking the money and running after buying a house yeah. and going to work in recruitment or, or doing something else, which is very frustrating. Um, and the only people it ends up impacting really badly on eventually is, is the students because they obviously don't have this constant presence um there you know with you know the stream of supplies etc if schools aren't able to recruit i think the media has got a massive part to play in in whether people want to apply to be a teacher or not because we constantly see the teaching profession profession being derided by people especially in the right-wing media but also by politicians you know who kind of try to insinuate that teachers are lazy um you know etc so I think it needs a whole kind of rebranding the profession. And, and I know that's something that the, the DFE have, have tried to do in recent kind of getting to teaching adverts and things like that. I mean, I, I mentioned to you before we, 
we started recording that I'd seen that the DFE had teamed up with Lad Bible to try and um, do some kind of advertising campaign for teachers who are under 28 and have really fun hobbies. So, you know, I'm, I'm not um, a Max Clifford or a PR expert, but I can guess that what they're trying to um, crack on to there is this idea that teachers have personalities, I guess, and that they're not the stuffy kind of lever elbow patch tweed suit wearing people we might imagine. <laughs> Um, so who knows whether that will work we may get you know a whole host of excellent fun young people coming into the the profession from it maybe I don't know Um, but yeah I mean I think it's about making teaching an attractive profession as well Um, you know and having better pay I think um, because you know I think a starting salary for for an NQT now is about 24 25 something like that um so why would somebody with a first class degree from Oxford go and do that when they can go and work in the city for a starting salary of 40 and that's the irony of the bursary isn't it because Mm -hmm. it's not a profession that you join because you're going to be well well paid I mean it it pays okay don't get me wrong I'm not saying that teaching doesn't pay okay it it does 24,000 pounds doesn't go very far if you have to pay rent bills you have you need a car you need to pay food it doesn't leave you with very much at the end of the month does it you're not going into a profession where you're earning an absolute fortune it's not about the money is it it's a it's there's a no, more of not. a moral purpose it, it is a but teacher not, isn't there yeah but not everybody has that moral purpose that's the issue isn't it and yeah and actually some people who are absolutely brilliant teachers don't have that moral purpose um so there has to be more in it than just getting a I'm a teacher moral purpose badge um I think you know there there has to be some kind of material gain from it and obviously we get the holidays which is absolutely amazing (laughs) Um, uh, you know but we are all so tired by the holidays that I can't move for the first two or three days in it anyway because I'm so exhausted (laughs) so I saw a a, you know a brilliant tweet the other day on Twitter uh, that went viral I can't remember whose it was now um but they said something like you know make teaching a profession where we don't need the holidays to recover and I I couldn't agree more so I think there needs to be more in it for people there needs to be things um, you know career aspiration um, opportunities for people who may not necessarily want to be SLT or be a school head because a lot of experienced teachers get to the stage of being sort of 10 15 years in don't want to be a middle leader or a senior leader and find themselves stuck frustrated etc which is why I isn't it it is yeah and and, you know I wrote a book called preserving positivity which was basically all about that so it was about kind of you know career teachers who have stayed in the classroom and feel really kind of forgotten to be honest and, and you know quite frustrated by the lack of opportunity um, and, and it isn't a lack of opportunity because, of course, we, can, we all do things in schools that we don't get paid for out of goodwill because it interests us. But it, it, but it is important that those skills are recognised in, in a monetary way as well, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I, do, I mean, I do think teachers should be should be paid more and a lot more as well or invest more money in it and give more time to teachers so you can employ more teachers, but the teachers need to be out there to employ in the first place, if that's the case, don't they? The other thing I think is when you look at other countries and the way that they revere teachers and mm-hmm. how they are put on a pedestal. I interviewed Yamina Bibi a, a few um, a couple of months ago and she talked about how her family um, 
absolutely value education and for their children you mean her and her sisters are all teachers yeah Mm -hmm. to be teachers to them is such an accolade they are so proud of their daughters for being teachers I think a lot of teachers in this country will do a they'll say oh I'm just a teacher yeah because Mm -hmm. there's no because we don't have the same sort of respect for the job that teachers do and I think the media does have quite a lot of responsibility for that in terms of how they're portrayed you know there's why do we have this thing in this country where we say oh yeah it's easy being a teacher you start at nine you finish at three or that teaching isn't a real job oh yeah yeah, teachers (laughs) they've never worked in the real world like a school isn't a real world where actually you're dealing with more real world issues in a school than you'll ever deal with if you work in an office in the city center of Manchester you know you're dealing with like a lot of difficult stuff day in day out and there's that sense isn't there that people just look at teaching and go oh it's easy that you know anyone can do it you're not you're not really working that that's one of the issues isn't it as well yeah I mean I think to be honest I was guilty of that in the past as well I mean when I was a journalist um, and when I was in my kind of English degree I used to think people would say oh you know you could become a teacher and I used to be like I don't think so you know teaching something that people do with an English degree when they can't think of anything else to to do essentially so I did have quite a disparaging view of of teachers before I went into the profession Um, I think you know the problem is with teaching isn't it that everybody's been to school everybody has had experience of, of of knowing teachers and some of those experiences have been negative um we're human beings we're more programmed to think about our negative interactions than our positive and I think that because everybody's been to school they think that they have bought or earned some kind of opinion about what teaching is like and I think anybody who you know, worked in schools before 2015, really, has had a very different experience to post-2015 after those reforms. And, you know, teachers, I think, in the last kind of six or seven years have worked harder than I ever worked before that, actually. Um, And I'll probably get lambasted for saying that, but it's absolutely true. It's an incredibly different profession to what it was before that. Um, You know, so I, I think people think they're, they're owed an opinion on it and they're happy to voice it. I think teachers are an easy target because of the holidays. Um, but I also think sometimes, and this will probably make me a bit unpopular as well, um, that having been in industry, sometimes teachers do think that they're the only person in the world who works hard. Um, and actually, when I was a journalist, I worked just as many hours as teachers so and, and for just as little pay. So I, I actually, without the holidays, <laughs> so I, I do actually think that there are many, many people in many, many industries who work the backsides off and sometimes teachers constant moaning doesn't do them any favours. No. So I'm going to probably get lambasted for that, but I don't care. Well, it's not a race to the bottom, is it? It's not. No, that's the thing. Yeah. So, and you know, we all work hard. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it should be acknowledged, but I think, I think you're right as well. Probably the unions don't always help. And I would, you know, I fully advocate unions. Don't get me wrong. You, you know, you must be a member of a union if you're a teacher. But I think sometimes unions don't help us in that respect either. Um, in terms of sort of, you know, bringing the, the politics into into teaching. And don't get me started on the politics of teaching because I could be talking for another 
three whole weeks on the politics of teaching <laughs> you just mentioned Michael Gove and I just thought of Nick Gibb and that was it made me very it made me feel very angry so let's not let's not go down that <laughs> let's not go down that avenue um what what would your advice be to schools who are just about to embark on this new way of working with early careers teachers um to get the best out of it before we finish I think support your mentors 1000% because they're going to be your key players on the ground who are going to support the early career teachers. So if you support your mentors and give them the time and value what they do and, you know, support their training, then I think that will then cascade automatically down to early career teachers. And and actually as well, you know, check in on, on your ECTs. There's nothing more um, kind of validating, I suppose, of making an early career teacher feel part of a, of a school school than their head stopping them in the corridor and asking them you know how it's going because sometimes as, as a, a an NQT or an early career teacher in a school you can feel quite I suppose isolated from from school leaders and heads um, so I think that's really important. I think that is a really key thing isn't it that you make your ECTs feel like they're a part of the team because it can be hard can't it when you first start teaching to it, it's quite intimidating to go into into a school and you don't it's hard enough when you're a very experienced teacher isn't it to go into a new school and trying to get to know systems and processes and what you do when mm. this happens or what you do when that happens and sometimes just to head around the door to say Is everything okay do you need anything can be that can make a massive massive difference and it's a tiny tiny thing isn't it it is, and it does make a huge difference. But, you know, I, I also think as well that giving, choosing your mentors really carefully is, is something that school leaders can do as well to help. Because I think sometimes in the past, mentors I've had at various different points of my career, I've been sometimes quite negative staff um, who, you know, can be quite draining um, and quite negative about the profession as a whole. And that's not going to inspire people to, to continue in it if they're constantly spending time among people who are desperate to get out. And, you know, that's so important. And I think in a lot of schools, it's, uh, oh, it's your turn. You can be a mentor yes. this year or it's your turn or let's let's spread this out so that everybody gets it seen as what I was talking about before oh you get some extra freeze from this because we'll spread this trainee or this um career early careers teacher like we'll make you the mentor or you've got to and it's really important that you get the right person to work with the person and it's not about necessarily oh you you had the ECT last year so you can have the ECT this year because then also you don't get someone who's got a lot of experience doing it you want it to be probably a group of people who are really committed to that don't you are really interested in developing teachers and have it as something that they really enjoy and that they're interested in and they want to become more experienced themselves I suppose yeah I mean and I think as well you know there's that saying isn't it that it, that it takes a village to bring a child up well I think it takes a school to to develop an early career teacher and you know it's not just about the mentor working with the ECT it's also about the whole department and there will be things as a mentor that you are not brilliant at or you don't know the answer to so it's about utilizing those other expert colleagues and facilitating your uh, early career teacher in, in meeting with those in, in watching them uh, de you know develop uh, deliver lessons watching them plan having these kind of learning dialogues with them 
so it's really important that it's seen as a you know collaborative kind of, of approach with the whole department and the whole school I'm really optimistic that this is something that will help us to to retain teachers at the start of their career I think uh, you know I am hopeful that it's something that is going to make a difference yeah me too I really really hope so because I, I think it's got the um, you know the capability to be really transformational if it's if it's done well and done right if it's well planned and everybody knows what they're doing well in advance and can put things in place yeah I mean to be fair to be fair to the DFE on this occasion you know they've had a whole year piloting it with certain yeah. areas and school leaders have known about the implementation of this uh, framework for for about a year and a half now because I wrote my book based on the framework you know it was out over nearly a year ago now so they've had plenty of time so it's quite kind of distressing to me when I see um, surveys from from teacher tap and people like that where there's a huge proportion of school leaders who are still saying that they have no idea what the ECF is it's quite worrying (laughs) or they don't know what the core content framework for ITT is and things like that yeah yeah it's a worry because my experience of schools is that lots of things are done on the last minute but that's another that's another yeah issue as well. I mean that's that's the nature of schools isn't it they're you they're know just busy I mean, aren't they busy they places are, aren't yeah. they and yeah, time absolutely. goes so quickly in them as well you know you turn around and a half term's gone so it's it's the it's just the nature of being in a really busy place isn't it um, yeah so if people want to buy your book find out more about the work that you're doing um with Iris Connect um how can where can they buy your book to start with um just tell us again what your books are called and where they can buy them and where they can find you and if they want to get in touch about you know maybe using Iris Connect in their schools um where can where can they do that so you can find probably the best place to get me is Twitter um and um my um twitter handle is just my name hughes highly um so you can you can find me on there um the so far as my books go um they're sold on the evil amazon website (laughs) but also on many many independent bookshops direct from the um publishers and also blackwell's waterstones they they sell them so i've I've got three books out at the moment there's preserving positivity which is um, aimed at experienced teachers who maybe be feeling a little bit jaded with the profession so essentially I would say that it's kind of CPD and well-being book um, and that was published with John Catt I have a mentoring in schools um, which is aimed at early career teachers across all phases so right from early years up to um, FE uh, and actually, I know a lot of universities and teaching school hubs and skits and things have bought it for use with their mentor training. So that's sold kind of thousands of copies have been absolutely bowled over by by that one. Um, and then the one that just come out recently is a little bit of different for me, but still kind of celebrates experienced teachers, which is the thread that runs all the way through my books. And that's called Humans in the Classroom. Um, and it's a compendium of amazing educators stories. So got some really um interesting characters in there such as Catherine Burble Singh you'll see a whole new oh. side to Catherine in that book than than you've seen on a social media profile um you know stars of, of ed- the educating program um Drew, Drew Povey who's been on um, the podcast yeah love Drew and he's coming love on again guy. 
he's coming yeah. back on again in November. Well, I have to wait till November to to speak to him. <laughs> he's so busy. Yeah, well, but, a- yeah. absolute legend. Uh, as as we know, lovely, lovely guy. Um, but also, you know, tragic stories told by um, daughters, granddaughters of of quite famous teachers that have sadly passed away. So, the teacher that um, died at, at Dunblane, Gwen Mayer, her daughter tells a story in there. Um, and um, we have um, the mum of the amazing, legendary, uh, sorry, the daughter of the uh, amazing, legendary Rita Pearson from that famous TED Talk about all children needing a champion is in there oh, yes. as well. Yes. Vic Goddard, oh, sounds, heaps sounds of people. Sounds great. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, might have to get myself a copy of that. Yeah, it's um, good summer reading, definitely. Very inspirational. I am, I am really sorry. I'm going to apologise to you because names are so important and I think I've pronounced your name wrong, so I sincerely apologise to you. If that's don't worry, case. I get and you it. Didn't I even it correct constantly. me. So. Well, I don't. I answer to it now because I have it so much. So I honestly don't worry. Haley, highly, it's all good. <laughs> well, I apologise. Um, I know. I know how it, it doesn't really bother me anymore. But when people spell my name with a Y or double K I and it's V I C K I, I get a little bit like mm. so. <laughs> So please accept my apologies, Hayley. Um, no worries. <laughs> I won't get it wrong again. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much to Hayley for joining us on the show today. We talked about so many different things that I'm sure that there is something that you will have taken from that interview. I just need to point out to you that the date of the Mentor Ed conference that Hayley referred to, which was planned for the 30th of October this year, has actually been changed now to the 19th of March 2022. So that's going ahead next year in March I would highly recommend you book tickets for that. Um, there are some really brilliant speakers. The lineup is absolutely fantastic. Um, I will be speaking at that conference as well. And David Weston is there. Rachel Lofthouse is there. Yamina Bibi, who joined us on the show. So do book your tickets for that because it is going to be a really great conference. So I just started my Women Lead Well group coaching program this week. So a shout out to those women who've joined us on the program. It was really great to meet them and I'm very excited about the work we're going to do together. If you would like to join us on the next cohort of the Women Lead Well group coaching program, I have now opened bookings and applications for the January cohort. So if that's something you're interested in, if you'd like to find out more, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. You can get in touch with me all the usual ways. We've got the We Lead Well Facebook group. You can contact me via that. I'm on Twitter, uh, just searching We Lead Well. And I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can find me on there. I think I use my Sunday name on LinkedIn, perhaps maybe on Victoria Maguire. That's all we've got time for for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to having a chat with you next time. Take care of yourself. Take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, HeadTeacherChats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.